0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 46. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, your guide into realms of wonder and imagination. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you. But first, here's a brief update on me and Liminal Corvid Press. As you can hear from the greatly improved sound quality, the new recording studio is up and running. I've got my acoustic panels all mounted, and even though my new recording closet is more than twice the size of the old one, they seem to be working just fine. That's good news for two reasons. One, it means that production on Things Unseen will be moving forward without any interruptions. Two, it means that I can finally record the next bonus story for my Patreon patrons— For March and April, I'm bringing you a jumbo-length short story called Maternal Instinct. You may remember me talking about it last year in my weekly writing reports. If you want to hear it, all you need to do is go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a monthly pledge to support the show. Even just a few dollars can really add up, and you'll get a new bonus story every month, plus bonus artwork from Metamore City artist Randall Fulton. And if you're already a patron... Keep an eye out for Maternal Instinct, coming soon. Back at the day job, this was my first week of specific hands on training with my new team in the microbiology group. There's a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to be pretty busy for a while just learning the routines. I had a bit of a setback this week because I hurt my back spending so much time leaning over the lab benches in new employee training. But I've got some meds and some new exercises from my physical therapist, and I'm already feeling much better. This whole experience taught me an important lesson. I have to start prioritizing exercise again. If I don't take care of this meat suit, it's not going to help me tell stories anymore, and I think we can all agree that's bad for everybody. Today, I'm bringing you the first part of Chapter Eleven in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. This story began in Episode Twenty Four so if you haven't caught up yet, make sure to go back and listen to all the previous chapters before hearing today's story. The following recap will contain spoilers. In Chapter 10, Kate and David learned that Hal Raines had committed suicide. He injected himself with a morphine overdose in order to keep from being burned alive by the magical symbiont that had possessed him. Hal was assisted by Kate's landlady, the succubus Isri Fallon. That drew the attention of the Lothanasi Order, but after questioning Ms. Fallon and the other witnesses, Commander Janus Starson decided not to arrest the succubus, even though she was complicit in the death of a mortal. The magical symbionts from the Telvari Rift were a much more important matter. Janus met with Kate and explained the situation. If the symbionts are a new form of life that the Lightbringers haven't encountered before, then the Lothanasi Charter demands that they try to make peaceful contact with them. Unfortunately, the symbionts are apparently terrified, suspicious, trapped thousands of miles from home, and slowly starving to death, as their need for life-aspected mana consumes their hosts from the inside out. So far, Kate is the only one whom the symbionts have been willing to talk to, Janus wants Kate to try to earn their trust to convince them to let the Lightbringers help them get home. Of the six people who went to the Inner Rift Zone, four now remain: Ezekiel Kapler, Hal's former lover and the mastermind of the trip; Julia Matthias, Zeke's current girlfriend; Mysteria Holloway, the infamous socialite and daughter of Intelligence Minister Count Xavier Holloway; and Sephira Hinlossos, Misty's lifelong companion and confidant. If they are to have any chance of returning to the Rift, they will need the disguise amulets that Kate is crafting for them, which will hide the ways that the Rift has warped and mutated their bodies. Kate hopes that favor will be enough to get them to trust her, but so far, only Misty has shown herself. Elsewhere in the city, the vampire prince Malcolm Ardvalos received an intriguing note from his chief of security, William Westerson. A mole in the Metamore City Police Department has revealed the deaths of Hal Rains and the shuttle pilot, Bernard Travers, both of whom had recently visited the Talvari Rift. Malcolm has been interested in the Rift for his own purposes, but now someone seems to have brought the Rift's power right to his doorstep. Eager to know more, Malcolm gives instructions for Westerson to hire a runner to obtain copies of Rains and Travers' autopsy records if the power that destroyed the two men can somehow be harnessed, Malcolm wants to be the first to know about it. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 11 Monday, April 9th, 2000. Christos Reckoning Kate saw very little of Sunday. She spent most of it cooped up in her lab, performing the complex and difficult enchantment rituals necessary to create the disguise charm for Misty. Creating a glamour was nearly as easy as breathing for her, but binding that glamour to a bit of wood and metal without it collapsing was something else entirely. After botching the first try in her haste, she stopped, took half an hour to meditate and recenter herself, then started again, being careful to follow the directions in her spellbook. This time the enchantment worked. She slipped the amulet over her neck and saw the familiar image of Misty Halloway appear in her bedroom mirror. The glamour copied the image of the clothes Kate was wearing and adjusted them to fit Misty's form. That was more complicated than giving the glamour a fixed set of clothes, but it would be absolutely necessary for long-term use, since no one would believe it if Misty wore the same outfit every time she went out in public. Satisfied, Kate pulled off the amulet and put it in her jacket pocket. The next morning she swung by the hedonist temple on her way to work. She watched Misty try it on and made sure the glamour was fully functional from all angles. Misty's tail was a bit of a problem. Kate had shaped the glamour to make it invisible, but the tail was long. The last half-meter or so poked out through the glamour field when she stretched it out to its full length. "'Sorry about that,' Kate said. "'I warned you it wasn't a perfect solution.' "'Yeah, you did,' Misty sighed. "'I guess I'll just have to wrap it around me or something.' "'Just be careful how close you get to people,' Kate said." Even if they can't see your tail, they'll feel it if it touches them, and since you can't see it either, you might not know exactly where it is. I doubt that Daddy is going to let me get too close to anyone but the hired help for a while, Misty said sourly, but thank you anyway. Sure. What should I do with Ezekiel and Julia's when I'm finished with them? Take them to Julie, Misty said. She can't stand most of her family, so she's got her own apartment down in Broadfield— she and Zeke have been staying there because it's out of the way and won't attract attention. The address is in the box with her personal info. Thanks, Kate said. I should have them ready in another couple of days. What about Sephra? A brief flicker of something, worry, pain, passed over Misty's face. Nobody sees Sephie but me, Misty said firmly. Bring her amulet here and give it to John. We'll make sure she gets it. That set off alarm bells in the back of Kate's mind. What's the matter? Is she sick? She's fine, Misty said, though the look in her eyes said she clearly wasn't. What the rift did to her was just... kind of embarrassing. We're taking good care of her, though. All right. Kate wrapped her arms around herself and looked down at the floor. Um, you heard what happened on Saturday night? Misty went still. Then she sank onto the edge of the bed, visibly deflating. Yes. How? I'm sorry, Kate said, working hard to keep her tough-as-nails cop composure. I tried to help him, but I guess he ran out of time. If you can find a strong mana source and stay close to it, you should last longer. But not forever. Misty said nothing. Kate took a deep breath. Misty, I think I know why you didn't tell me everything when I first met you. You don't really know me, I get that. But you're going to have to tell somebody, and I think it's going to have to be soon. Or else Hal's going to have company. Misty flinched at that. After a long moment, she said, in a very small voice, I just want to go home. Kate knelt and took her hand. And I want to help you get there, but it's going to mean you have to trust me. It may even mean trusting some people you don't like very much. The younger woman looked up at that. Like who, my father? God's no, Kate said. People who specialize in, well, being mediators in situations like this. Misty looked confused for a moment, then recognition dawned. Oh, you cannot be serious! Afraid so, Kate said. I talked to Agent Starson on Saturday night. He wants to meet with all of you. Once he's convinced you're on the level, he'll arrange for safe passage back to the rift. Misty snorted derisively. I'll bet. And why should we believe a word he says? Kate squeezed her hand and looked her straight in the eyes. Because he's an honorable man. Maybe not a good man. Definitely not a nice man but he is honorable. She gave her a wry half-smile, which is sometimes the best you can do. Misty bit her lip, or at least that was what it looked like with the glamour. Kate could only imagine what she was doing with that mouthful of fangs. How do I know I can trust him? Or you? Kate rose to her feet. You don't. You never do with people. Some things you have to take on faith. She turned and headed for the door, then paused and looked back. I don't know how much you know about humans. I'm just guessing here, but we probably seem like a bunch of violent, paranoid, backstabbing monkeys. Because we are. But the thing is, sooner or later, we all find ways to trust each other, even though we might get burned doing it. Misty's lip curled into a sneer. Because deep down inside, humans are all noble creatures that want to rise above their natures, right? Oh, hell no, Kate said. It's just better than facing the darkness alone. Then she turned and walked out, leaving the dumbstruck Misty behind her. Evan Salindi leaned in close to the mirror in the men's bathroom fiddling with his collar and brushing a lock of long, golden hair back into place. He picked a nearly invisible piece of lint off of his left shoulder, then showed the mirror his dazzling, perfect smile. Looking good, my boy, he thought to himself. The primping was probably overkill for the current assignment, but he always made it a point to look his best, even if he was just sweet-talking some documents out of a bored and underpaid civil servant. Only the gods knew why the syndicate wanted autopsy records, but if there was a demand for something, Evan was more than willing to arrange for the supply. Provided it could be done elegantly, of course. There were other contractors better suited to the brute force approach. Evan was a finesse man, a face, a social engineer, and he was very good at his job. Which was, of course, why Malcolm's outfit kept gracing him with its business— Over the years, he had worked his way up until he was answering directly to William Westerson, Malcolm's security czar and the director of Viscount Security Solutions, one of the many companies in Metamore that were under the vampires' control. Evan was only an independent contractor, not actually part of the outfit, but that was the way he liked it. There were only two kinds of permanent partners in the syndicate, vampires and the pathetic thralls who worshipped them like gods. Evan had no interest in being either. He'd take their money, but he was the master of his own destiny, thank you very much. Finally satisfied with his appearance, Evan picked up his clipboard and briefcase and headed back out into the corridors of Brightleaf General Hospital. He slumped his shoulders and walked with a quick, agitated pace, periodically glancing down at his clipboard and muttering to himself, Hospital employees saw his irritated expression and the Imperial ID badge clipped to his jacket and quickly got out of his way. People were reluctant to question anything that looked official, proper, and potentially inconvenient. It made bureaucracy a very reliable form of camouflage. He passed unchallenged into the depths of the hospital, down to the morgue operated by MCPD's Forensic Investigation Division. Here, at last, someone demanded to know who he was and what he was doing there. Thomas Finch, Ministry of Health, he said briskly, affecting an accent that would identify him as upper-middle-class and city-born. I'm here for the autopsy records on—he checked his clipboard— Travers, Bernard, male, age 43, and Rains Harold Jr., age 25. They should be in a sealed envelope, already waiting for me. The young autopsy assistant frowned in confusion. I didn't hear anything about a pickup from the ministry. Just a sec. He consulted a bulletin board on the wall for a long moment, then came back, shaking his head. I'm sorry, there's nothing there. Staring up at the unseen heavens, Evan let out an exasperated sigh. Typical, he muttered. You'd think I could at least count on those desk monkeys to make a few phone calls. I suppose they think my job just isn't challenging enough. He set down his briefcase and notepad and leaned in over the desk, folding his hands in front of him. He gave the autopsy assistant a sheepish smile and dropped his voice to a conspiratorial tone. Look, Leonard, he said, glancing at the man's ID badge. I'm in a bit of a spot here. I know this isn't your fault, and I'm really sorry to inconvenience you, but I've really got to bring back those records today or the boss is going to have my hide. If I have to go back to the ministry and fight through a bunch of paperwork again, and then come back here? He snorted and shook his head. Well, you must know what pencil pushers are like, am I right? Oh, gods, yes, Leonard groaned. I had to stand in line for two hours to fix a typo in a driver's license. See, that's what I'm talking about. Evan reached out and briefly touched the man's shoulder. And the Ministry of Health is filled with people like that. It's like they have nothing better to do than to make life harder for guys like us, who are doing the real work. You said it, brother, Leonard said. Pencil pushers, screw em. screw 'em." Screw Evan agreed, grinning as he offered his hand. Leonard gripped it briefly and grinned back. "'So, Leonard, let me ask you this. "'I mean, you're the expert here. "'You know how all this works on your end.' "'Leonard waggled his hand in a so-so gesture. "'Eh, more or less. "'I've been here a couple years.' "'Right, and I just walked in the door,' Evan said. "'So let me ask you, "'is there any way to get the records faster "'so I don't spend the day getting it up the ass "'from Captain Bureaucrat?' "'The assistant smirked at that, "'but he shook his head. "'Sorry, man.' The only person who can authorize releasing info in a stiff is the head medical examiner. No way I'm bucking regs against her. I understand, Evans said, sympathetically, putting his hand on Leonard's shoulder again. Is she here? Um, yeah. Leonard seemed to have become suddenly interested in his hands. He picked at a hangnail. But she's, um, indisposed right now. Indisposed? How? Well, um... He glanced at the clock on the wall. She's sleeping. Evan raised his eyebrows. At eight o'clock in the morning? Night shift, sir. She stayed late working, and then dawn came, and... The young man trailed off. Ah, I see. Evan nodded sagely. She needed some shut-eye before she felt safe to drive. I've been there. Poor thing's probably slumped over her desk getting a crick in her neck. Evan smiled and shrugged. Of course, you could wake her up, let her go home to her own bed, and I'd just grab her for a minute on the way out. Everybody wins. He said it casually, but Leonard didn't seem to take it that way. The assistant cleared his throat. Mr. Finch, I take it they didn't tell you about our Emmy's special... disability? A little warning bell started sounding in the back of Evan's mind. He suppressed a few murderous thoughts for employers who didn't breathe him properly before the job. "And what disability," he asked very quietly, "would that be?" A rich, sensual contralto came from behind him. "I prefer to think of it as being metabolically challenged." Leonard straightened visibly. His face turned white. "Dr. Drowling," I'm sorry, I hope we didn't wake you. Drowling. Evan almost whipped around, but checked himself at the last moment. No sudden movements. Don't show fear. You can handle this. Steadying himself, he turned around in one smooth, deliberate motion, and cast his eyes on the vampire lounging in the doorway. And that's where we're going to stop for this week, folks. So, Evan Salindi meets Morgan Drowling for the first time. Can he convince her to turn over the autopsy records? Or will our undead medical examiner see through Evan's lies? Find out when the story continues next week. Ernest Hemingway said... We are all apprentices in a craft where no one ever becomes a master. Which is kind of a good thing, I think, because if I were a master at this, I'd have to teach others how to do it. Here's your weekly writing report. This week saw the end of March 2016, and from a writing perspective, I am glad to see it go. It was a terrible month for me where writing was concerned. I only managed 4,468 words in the entire month, spread over just seven days, for an average output of 638 words per day. Needless to say, that's the worst monthly total I've had since I started this podcast. I could make excuses here, if I wanted to. I moved halfway across the country, started a new job, rebuilt my studio, I got sick, and then I got hurt. I went to visit family for Easter weekend, and this weekend I went to a wedding for my friends, who helped to get me this awesome new job. There are a lot of things I could blame for my low word count. But you know what? I've had busy months before, and I still did a lot better than this. So no more excuses. April's a new month, and it's time to get serious about my craft again. Next week, I'm going to have better news to report here. If you'd like to share your thoughts about this show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. I had to restart the voicemail line this week because people weren't using it, so seriously, call in. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash chris lester and on Twitter as ethereus e-t-h-e-r-i-u-s. To converse with your fellow fans, join the fans of Metamore City Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. And to support the show and get cool bonus content, make a pledge at patreon.com slash chris lester. That's all for this week. Come back next time for more fresh new fiction. Until then, Keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.